Well, good morning again, and it's a real privilege that we have to uh, come under God's Word and uh, learn from it and um, be grown and challenged by it. Uh, these are God's Word to us, and um, uh, we are so thankful and privileged that uh, God has not kept himself hidden, but he has revealed himself to us uh, supremely through his Son, the Living Word but uh, sufficiently through the scriptures. Uh, In the early stages of Jesus' public ministry, uh, focused in and around the area of Galilee, his fame grew exponentially. And it drew the attention uh, from the religious leaders. And it led to a series of uh, increasing challenges to his authority. The Gospel writer Mark uh, lists five uh, consecutive events uh, within chapters 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. But the challenges of the leaders uh, in seeking to discredit Jesus uh, only gives Jesus opportunity to clarify further his identity. As Mark explains, uh, Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive sins. Uh, He is the one who has come not to call the righteous, but sinners. He is the saviour. He is the bridegroom of Israel, the one promised from long ago. And in the final uh, two encounters, uh, Jesus explains clearly that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So please turn with me to Mark 2 and verse 23 to 28. And let's read. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of the defining marks of the people of Israel, uh, along with circumcision and uh, the dietary requirements. In Exodus chapter 31 and verses 16 to 17, we read this. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant given by God to Moses on behalf of the people. Uh, And the Sabbath was a sign that was to last as long as the Mosaic covenant lasted. But since... The Mosaic Covenant uh, has been fulfilled in the New Covenant by Jesus Christ. Christians, 
we no longer recognize the Sabbath, uh, nor any of the other defining marks uh, of Judaism. The Sabbath has been replaced by observing the Lord's Day in honor of Jesus' resurrection. Now, this is not specifically the focus of Mark chapter 2, but it A proper understanding of this is still important. And so next week, uh, we will look at the second controversy that happened on the Sabbath, the beginning of Mark chapter 3. And then the following week, uh, we will address fully the nature of the Lord's Day. Our focus now, however, is on understanding Jesus' authoritative claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath. We need to see that in claiming this title, Jesus strikes at the heart of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, while at the same time showing his privilege of interpreting the law of God. And why does he have this privilege? Because he is the eternal Son of God. That's why. So, uh, if you have a new sheet, you'll see the outline of today's sermon, which is entitled, Lord of the Sabbath. Our first point, in verses 23 to 24, we see a charge raised. This is where uh, the impetus for this uh, display of Jesus' authority happens. So let's read these verses again, and we will see this charge raised. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, there are a number of things that the disciples are doing right here. But is anything against God's law? And the answer to that is no. Uh, They are not doing anything to break God's law here. But they are breaking the traditions of the Pharisees. Uh, Those things added to God's law, the things that the the leaders had sought to interpret uh, God's law and codified for the people to understand. These are what the disciples are breaking. And on this occasion, it all has to do with what constitutes work on the Sabbath. Uh, If we go back to the fourth commandment, uh, we see uh, the, the workings of this in Exodus Chapter 20 and verses 8 to 11. Uh, Let me read. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, uh, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so coming out of uh, this uh, fourth commandment is a focus on rest. God has set the, the principal focus of that in the way that he has created the world in, in, in six 24-hour days, and then he rested from his creative work on the seventh And so he has set that up uh, through uh, the commandments given to Israel, to his people. 
uh, that they are to imitate this. There's a focus here on rest and a resting in God's provision. Now, this is reiterated in, in Deuteronomy, uh, where uh, Moses and the people, they are on the, the cusp, the brink of heading into the promised land. And uh, Moses gives a series of sermons to remind the people of, of what's been happening over the past 40 years and then to uh, uh, remind them of the importance of following God uh, as they enter into the promised land. Now, in Deuteronomy 5, uh, Moses again reiterates that focus on rest, but then he adds one more thing. In chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So there is a focus on rest, but here we see there is also a focus on remembrance. Uh, it is a focus on, on worship. Uh, not only are they to cease from work, they are to uh, use that time to re, uh, re-examine their focus on God and to trust in Him and His provision and to give Him praise for this. But what does it mean uh, not to work on the Sabbath? What exactly does that mean? Well, in, in Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, we get an example, a clear example of this that is a violation uh, of the Sabbath commandment. If we want to know what not to do, well, well here is, here is uh, certainly one extreme boundary. Uh, in Nehemiah, uh, he, uh, it is at the time when the, the people of Israel have been brought back from exile, the, the, the wall has been rebuilt and um, they're starting to, to regain um, some of those blessings that were lost through their sinful disobedience and yet we still see that uh, nothing has changed. So Nehemiah 13, verse 15. In those days I saw, this is Nehemiah speaking, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So this is a serious breach here. But he goes on in verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Remember this also in my favour, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So here we see a clear violation of uh, what it means not to work on the Sabbath. They were trading, they were bringing in uh, foreign peoples to, to sell and all of this in front of Nehemiah, in front of the temple uh, on the Sabbath. But how specific do we have to be? Uh, that was the question the Jews sought to ask. What is the, what is the lowest limit of, uh, you know, this is an extreme here. What's the lowest limit that, that we are called to, to follow? Well, by the time of Jesus' public ministry, no less than 24 chapters of Jewish interpretation uh, had been devoted to explaining what you shall not do any work what that meant. 24 chapters. It was very detailed and it covered the whole of life. They were serious about not breaking this commandment. Uh, In his book, Words from the Fire, which was an exposition of the Ten Commandments, uh, Albert Moeller, he gives one example uh, of the extremes uh, to which this was taken. Uh, He gives the example of a chicken laying, laying an egg and uh, this is recorded, and the issue is, if you find an egg under a chicken on the Sabbath day, there is a, a matter to be decided here. Was that egg laid before the Sabbath started, and you just happened to find it after the Sabbath? Then you could treat that as a gift. If the chicken, however, laid the egg on the Sabbath, then that egg is to be destroyed, because that constitutes work. Now, you can't ask the chicken, so you've got to be very wary about that. The problem is, this, this hyper-literal understanding of work on the Sabbath just does not even align with the Scriptures. In this uh, passage from Nehemiah 13, we see a classic case of this. Verse 22 uh, said, Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, is guarding the gates work or is it not here's the issue so back to the matter in mark chapter 2 what have the disciples done wrong well they have broken the pharisees traditions about what can and cannot be done on the sabbath now there's two matters here first technically they're actually walking on the Sabbath. They're, they're travelling through uh, the, the fields. Now, a limit was set of 1,999 steps, or in the imperial, 3,000 feet. This is how far you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath outside of your house that did not constitute work. Uh, although, as John MacArthur points out in his commentary on Mark, there were ways devised to get around that. Let me quote. If one placed food at the 3,000 foot point before the Sabbath began, that point was considered an extension of one's home, thereby enabling a person to travel another 3,000 feet. Or if a rope or a piece of wood was placed across a narrow street or alley, it was considered a doorway. Uh, making it part of one's home and allowing the 3,000 feet of travel to begin there. So, technically, 
Jesus and his disciples are, are breaking this tradition. But perhaps they're not charged on this matter because the Pharisees are, are using these flimsy loopholes uh, to spy on Jesus in the first place. No, no mention is made of how they're out in the fields to see uh, Jesus and his disciples plucking grain. The second and the thing that uh, is, is brought up and what the disciples are charged with is uh, working by plucking the heads of grain. Now, plucking the heads of grain is not an unlawful act in itself. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, there is provision made by God for this. We read in verses 24 and 25. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. This was a provision by God to enable weary travellers to get food when they needed it. Now, that's not the issue. The issue is they were doing this on the Sabbath. As John MacArthur explains again, uh, by rabbinic standards, the disciples were guilty of several forbidden actions. Uh, They were reaping by plucking the grain. They were sifting by removing the husks and the shell. They were threshing by rubbing the heads of grain together. They were winnowing by throwing the chaff into the air. And they were preparing a meal by eating the grain after they had cleaned it. None of those activities were permitted on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees were charging Jesus and his disciples with unlawful behaviour because according to the Pharisees' traditions, they were working on the Sabbath. The charge that Jesus will then send back at them is hypocrisy. Jesus is not saying that God's law is to be overlooked or or softened in any way and hence opening the door for uh, antinomianism, which uh, means against the law. So it's not opening the door to freedom to do whatever you like. Uh, No, he will critique the Pharisees for failing to understand God's law, for failing to abide by God's law, failing to be satisfied in God's law. And the application uh, to draw from this is to come back to God's word. Many will hold themselves and others to moral standards uh, of their own determining, but fail to have these foundations in scripture. Trusting in God's word, submitting to God's word, enables us to avoid both extremes, extremes of sinful liberalism, uh, the extreme of freedom, extreme freedom, and, and sinful legalism, that is extreme restrictions. In fact, how does Jesus respond to their charge raised? Well, he goes back to the scriptures. And so point two, we see a case reviewed from the scriptures. Let me read again. Verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? 
So in effect, Jesus says, if you guys claim to be the authorities on the law, then how have you never heard about what David did? The problem is they have heard and they've just kind of overlooked that. So to understand Jesus' point, we must go and understand what David did, uh, which is an incident recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So let me read the first six verses. Then David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest. And Abimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Abimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? And so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, we will look at the details of this in a second. But before we look at it more deeply, there is just one matter related to the inerrancy of Scripture that we must address. Uh, Was Jesus wrong to refer to Abiathar as the high priest rather than Abimelech. Did you notice there was a difference in what Jesus said and in what the name of the priest was in 1 Samuel 21? Well, there is no error here and I'll explain why. Abiathar is Abimelech's son. Uh, Abiathar was the high priest throughout David's whole reign as king. He's actually introduced in the next chapter in 1 Samuel. But the wording of Jesus, where he says, in the time of Abiathar the high priest, it's it's non-specific and it essentially means in the days of. So as one commentary states, although David did in fact eat the bread of the presentation under Abimelech, The event seems to have been remembered and transmitted in association with the dominant high priesthood of Abiathar. So was there any error? No, there is not. Scripture is true and trustworthy in every single word we read. So, what has happened then in 1 Samuel 21? Well, David is on the run from King Saul. And what happens is he goes to the tabernacle in the town of Nob. And he is so desperate for food and provisions that he deceives the priest Abimelech. He says that he's actually on a mission for the king, which in actual fact he is running from the king. Uh, The priest, thinking David is on this mission, assists him by giving him the only food that is available Uh, the holy food, these 12 loaves of the presence, uh, which are set apart only to be consumed by the priests. Um, These 
This is made clear in, in Leviticus chapter 24 where it outlines the, uh, the 12 loaves um, uh, of the, the presence and how they are to be eaten only by the priests. And these 12 loaves are to be rebaked each Sabbath and replaced and then they serve as the food for the priests in the tabernacle. The 12 represents the 12 tribes and it recognises God's presence among them as their provider. Now, how are we to interpret this? How does Jesus uh, use this illustration in responding to the Pharisees? Well, there is much debate about this. Um, And this in evangelical circles. So we don't need to be so hard and fast about this. But let's have a look. Is it to highlight that in matters of need, um, compassion is to override law? Is it to highlight David's authority to override the law? And hence, how much more authority does Jesus have to do so? Those are probably the two main Uh, interpretations that we find. Now, in my own study, I've struggled to connect the dots with either of these positions. Uh, The first can lead to a validation of what's known as situation ethics. Um, Instead of having an objective sense of ethics that are are, are true uh, in every situation you find yourself in, uh, situation ethics is is more subjective. So, uh, you what is right and wrong is kind of determined by the circumstances of the time. So I think that first option kind of leaves the door open for that a bit. But secondly, somehow, uh, if if David has authority to override the law and if Jesus is, is making this illustration for himself, it somehow uh, places Jesus at odds with the law and it also places at odds with statements that he says elsewhere. So, Uh, particularly Matthew 5 and verse 17 where Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Now, I could be wrong, um, but I think Jesus gives the example of David in 1 Samuel 21 to highlight the inconsistency of the Pharisees. Jesus does not seem to be drawing a positive uh, point from David. He acknowledges David's actions as not lawful. And I think Abimelech's actions are also unlawful too. In fact, the consequences that follow uh, are disastrous. In 1 Samuel 22, King Saul uh, gets wind that Abimelech, even unknowingly, has actually uh, assisted David. And then he organises the execution of Abimelech, of his family, and he wipes out and slaughters the entire town of Nob, uh, except Abiathar, who is the sole survivor. Now Saul, of course, is completely responsible for these murders. But if David hadn't deceived, if Abimelech hadn't conceded, then this wouldn't have occurred. And David himself takes full responsibility for this at the end of that chapter. So I don't think uh, Jesus uses the picture of David as as a precedent to support his own actions. I think Jesus uses 1 Samuel 21 as an indictment against the Pharisees. Now, how does he do that? Well, I think he says to them with words to the effect, David broke God's law, but you do not condemn him. In fact, you revere him as Israel's greatest king. 
But I and my disciples, we've not broken God's law, but you do condemn us, even though, in fact, I am the Messiah, David's greatest son, Israel's true king, who fulfills every aspect of God's law. Jesus, I think, attacks the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He attacks their inability to recognize his true identity. Later in Mark chapter 12, Jesus will specifically refer to himself as David's greatest son. Now, while Mark ends Jesus' case review here, Matthew records what Jesus said further in his account in chapter 12 and verse 5. Jesus says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So here we see the Pharisees give David a pass, even though he is guilty of violating God's law. But they also give the priests a pass for working on the Sabbath, even though this violates the Pharisees' traditions and their understanding of what constitutes work on the Sabbath. So if the Pharisees can overlook the priests' work on the Sabbath, why are they all up in arms about what Jesus and his disciples have done? Now, in the first illustration, Jesus implies that he is the greater David. But in the second illustration, he's he's less than subtle. In Matthew 12, verse 6, he tells the Pharisees, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. The temple represents God's presence, but it also represents God's provision for the atonement of sin. Uh, James Hamilton, in his book, God's Indwelling Presence, uh, draws this out. And uh, we see that it's also a direct claim from Jesus about his deity. If the temple is where God's presence is known and God's provision is made, and he's claiming to be the temple... That is a direct claim to deity. But the purpose of this statement uh, in this context is to highlight that if the priests aren't guilty as they carry out their service in the temple, then as Jesus is the greater temple, how much more valid and important is the disciples' service and obedience to him? Now we are called to recognise this reality as well. We are called to let go of any of our traditions that we hold on to for our own salvation, uh, using as as moral props for ourselves. We are to let go of that and to trust in Christ Jesus, the sinless Saviour, the Word of God incarnate. Well, having shown the Pharisees' failure to understand uh, the law and the Sabbath, having shown the the glaring holes in their theology, we then see a clarification rendered by Jesus. Verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The previous example of King David critiques the Pharisees' ability to interpret the Sabbath. Here, Jesus clarifies it for them. Uh, He tells them its purpose. He tells them its focus. It is not meant to be a burden. It is meant to be a gift. While the Sabbath was established in Exodus 20 as part of the Ten Commandments, 
Its foundation is based on the order of creation. Man was created on day six, uh, with God resting from his creative work on day seven. The divine pattern of six days work with one day's rest was written into God's law as a pattern for Israel. It was meant to give them rest and cause them to rest in God's provision. However, as with all good things, sin corrupts. The sinful hearts of the legalists turned a gift into a burden. Instead of rejoicing in what God had blessed them with, they sought to turn it into an oppression. Uh, they, They failed to grasp the holiness of God, that his law could not be broken, but they also failed to grasp the goodness of God. They turned God's provision, uh, they tainted it, much like the serpent in the garden who dismissed God's goodness and God's provision. This is what they have done. Now in time, a focus on the external adherence took the place of internal adherence. This is why Matthew adds Jesus' further words in chapter 12, verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. This is a quote from Hosea 6, verse 6. And it's not to uh, deprecate the law, but to show that God's holiness demands greater, uh, demands far deeper response than simply ticking the boxes. The Pharisees were guilty of surface-level devotion, which is really no devotion at all. It had caused them to misunderstand God's law. It had caused them to condemn the one who had fulfilled God's law, the one who properly interpreted God's law, the one who had authority over God's law. And so a clarification rendered leads to a Christology revealed. Christology is a technical word, but it simply means the study of Christ. It incorporates everything the scriptures say about Jesus. And verse 28 is an incredible revelation from Jesus' own lips. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So verse 28 states a result or a conclusion. It's Jesus' summary. If the Sabbath was made for man, and if Jesus is the Son of Man, not simply another human being, but the Son of Man, meaning the divine man of Daniel 7, uh, the one given God's dominion and glory. If Jesus is the Son of Man, as he claims to be, then the conclusion is he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Lord can simply mean sir, uh, but the flow of the argument is more than this, much, much more than this. In the Old Testament, only God is Lord of the Sabbath. It is an even more direct claim to deity than his comment about the temple. Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Son of God. 
the second person of the Trinity at one with the Father. I established the Sabbath. Therefore, I get to interpret the Sabbath. It is one ultimate claim to authority. Well, at the heart of the Pharisees' development of their traditions is a desire to earn one's way into right standing before God. As we know, this is utter futility. And in doing so, they perverted God's gracious provision into an overbearing prohibition. Jesus called them on their hypocrisy. He highlighted their focus on external matters at the expense of internal. Their hearts were not directed to God, and hence they could not recognize the Lord of the Sabbath, the one in whom true rest could be found. It's a call for us to re-examine our understanding of Jesus. It's a call for us to re-examine our understanding of ourselves. Jesus is the authority. And the question is, will we humbly submit to him? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this series of uh, challenges that Jesus faced to his authority by the religious leaders. We thank you for the way in which he enabled that to teach uh, people about who he truly is. We thank you that we have your word now that we can understand who he is and moreover, by the power of your spirit, our, our sinful hearts can be uh, opened Our minds can come to understand and respond to the authority of Christ to submit to him and to find true rest and life in the one and only Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.